then, I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw a holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, See, the home of God is among mortals. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Mourning and crying and pain will be no more. For the first things have passed away. And the one who was seated on the throne said, See, I am making all things new. Also, he said, write this, for these words are trustworthy, and they are true. Then he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha, and I am the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give water as a gift from the spring of the water of life. Those who conquer will inherit these things. And I will be their God, and they will be my children. Good morning. Hey, we're grateful that you guys are here, and we want to welcome everyone uh, that's joining us. Maybe you're a first-time guest. We're grateful that you've taken the time to be with us this morning. Uh, we also want to welcome those that are joining us online, uh, wherever you might be on vacation, uh, as you're sitting on the beaches of uh, Cancun or something, uh, and also those that are uh, in Edgewood uh, joining us on our campus there. We are so grateful. Uh, for, for your attendance today. And if you're a first-time guest with us, you have uh, happened to join us in the middle of a, a series called Signs, which we're taking a, a look at the book of Revelation. And so if you're not new to church, uh, then you've heard about Revelation. But if you're new to church and you hadn't been in church in a really long time, uh, this may be one of the most difficult books uh, throughout all of your Bible. And a lot of people uh, just stay away from the book of Revelation because it, it seems to be a little bit too difficult for them in terms of just uh, they, they're not sure, do we take this as literal? Is it metaphoric? Uh, how, do we, how do we work through that? And so we here at Stone Point happen to believe uh, that the book of Revelation is God's revealed uh, teaching about things to come, about prophetic things, the things that are futuristic, uh, things that are yet to come but will come. And I happen to believe as the teacher here at Stone Point and the lead pastor that these things are literal. I believe that what you're talking about are literal time periods, literal events in history, and today I hope that as we dive into Revelation chapter 6 that God kind of begins to show uh, you uh, just kind of what he's talking about as he uh, shows the Apostle John this incredible vision of the things that will take place and uh, things that are to come. And if you're, if you're new to church and your very first time, uh, I would just say, listen, uh, do everything you can um, 
to, to try to take it in. I will hang around after the service. And if you have a question, I would love to visit with you. I'll actually meet you right over here in our Connection Point Center. Uh, we have some resources there. If you're a first-time guest, uh, uh, our, our pastor, uh, Dick Patterson, asked you earlier to take your communication card uh, there in the Wills Point campus. If you're in the Edgewood campus, you can take it to the back as well. They would love to just bless your family. Uh, in, in their lobby area, the Connection Point Center there, they would love to bless your family with free t-shirts, but we'd love to meet with you. Uh, pastor Brian would love to meet with you on the Edgewood campus, and I'd love to meet with you here. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Revelation chapter 6. Um, in order to kind of dive into Revelation chapter 6, we have to have a little bit of an understanding about what's about to take place. Uh, if you have a cell phone, um, one of the greatest features on the cell phone is this, uh, this thing called your camera, right? Can I get an amen? Yeah. Uh, some of you, like you, you are, you've got so much data filled up in your phone, uh, because of pictures, that is unbelievable. Um, I happen to love one feature, though, about the camera, and that's the, the panoramic view, the, the thing that you can kind of uh, look. And so, like, whether I'm in Guatemala or in Mexico or we're, Kelly and I are in a trip in New York about a year ago, I love the panoramic view. Like, you're sitting on uh, top of, uh, of some incredible huge building. You'll be able to see all of New York, and you just start from one side, and you just slowly take a shot all the way from the side. Anybody ever use that feature? Go ahead and raise your hand, yeah? It's one of the coolest features in the world, like, because you can just start, and you almost do like a 360 if you're talented enough, and you get this incredible picture. Well, Revelation chapter 6 is a panoramic of this time called the tribulation, and what you're going to get in Revelation chapter 6 is really this incredible view of what's going to take place over this, this period of time. And Scripture teaches us that it's a period of time that's seven years, and it's a time called Jacob's trouble. It's, it's a time that is a seven-year period. And you go, well, how in the world do you even come up with that? Well, if you, if you go to the Old Testament, there's a guy named Daniel that gets a, a vision from the Lord and, and ultimately from the angel Gabriel. And, and, and uh, Daniel chapter 9, uh, Daniel is praying, and he's saying, God, help me to understand kind of what's going on in the 70-year period in which they're in exile. The people of Israel had been booted out of their land at the hand of the Babylonians, and they're looking for a time. Like, when are we going to be able to return? And Daniel remembers that uh, prophets in that day and time had talked about a 70-year period, and he thought, man, I'm getting close. We're getting close to be able to go back to our land. The 70 years is almost fulfilled. And so Daniel just asks, and as he's praying and he's pleading with the Lord, the angel Gabriel shows up, and he answers kind of what's going on. In Daniel chapter 9, verses 24 through 27, the angel Gabriel tells Daniel, this prophet, uh, 600 some odd years before Jesus would ever come on the scene, he goes, here's what this means. And so here's what it was. The nation of Israel had rebelled against God, okay? Uh, if you are here, you're like, I don't even know what the nation of Israel is. Well, it's a little bitty, little bitty place uh, on the other side of the Mediterranean Sea. Um, if you are kind of caught up in world news right now, uh, Arab nations hate the Jewish nation. They've been battling since uh, the book of Genesis. Uh, that's kind of consistent with our Bibles. Nothing new, but it's, it makes headlines. Uh, this Jewish people are God's people. In the Old Testament, you see all about this nation. And here's what God said about the nation. He goes, hey, if you'll follow me, if if you'll, if you'll be my people, I'll be your God, and I will bless you with land and people and descendants, and I'll take care of you, and I'll curse those who curse you, and I'll bless those who bless you. So basically, those who come against you, I'll take care of. Well, the problem was is that later on, God would give another covenant, and uh, through that covenant, he would say, hey, listen, if, you, if you'll stay faithful to me, if you don't have other idols 
But he goes, I'm going to take care of you. But if you get idols, if you begin to worship other gods, gods of Baals, if you put up Asherah poles, if you do anything else, he goes, I'm going to, I'm going to take care of you. And, and uh, I'm going to move you out of the land uh, because of your rebellion. And so guess what? The people of Israel didn't really heed God's warning. And so there was about a 500-year period. Uh, 490 to 500 years in which they rebelled against God. Uh, one of the rebellions was is that they did not uh, offer God the, the Sabbath year, which every seven years God has said, here's what I want you to do. I want you to let, let the land rest. I want you to, uh, I want you to offer forgiveness uh, for those that owe you restitution. I want you to forgive their debts. And every seven years you should uh, let the land rest and you should forgive debts. And that would just kind of be a Sabbath approach. And you're to do that every seven years. Well, for 490-year period, guess what? The Israelites thought, you know what? That's a really dumb idea. Why would we let the land rest when we can have fertile crops? Why would we forget people's debts when they owe us money? We're not doing that. And so for 490 years, they decided they would skip every seventh year. So if you take 490 years and you take a year every single time that's supposed to be a seventh seventh year rest, guess what? You come up with 70 Sabbath rests that they decided to skip. Now you add all the idolatry in the nation of Israel, and God goes, you know what? I'm done. I'm going to boot you out of the land. And so Daniel, this prophet, gets booted out of the land with his buddies Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego at the hands of a guy named Nebuchadnezzar. They boot him out of the land. Daniel was praying, God, I've been out of the land for 70 years. Surely we're getting close. Finally, this angel Gabriel shows up, and he goes, no, actually, you're really not close. And here's why, because I'm not just going to punish you for the 70 years. I'm going to make those 70 years 70 weeks of seven. So he goes, I'm going to get back all 490 years. That's how God works. Got me? So you may think that you're really sly. I tend to think that. I'm like, oh, God, I'm going to kind of just trick you on that. And uh, God's like, listen, I'm going to get you one way or the other. And so that's just the way that God works. Uh, He did that with Ananias and Sapphira. They lied about some of the land in the New Testament, and God just dropped them on the spot. They're both dead. And so here's the deal. You really want the Lord on your side, okay? So if you're new to Stone Point for the very first time, you get nothing else I say. Just know this. You want the Lord on your side. That's a great thing to to hang on to. Here it is. The nation of Israel didn't have the Lord God on their side. He he moves them out of the land. And then here's what happens. In Daniel chapter 9, I encourage you to go read it for yourself. The angel Gabriel, he basically outlines, he goes, listen, you're going to have, you're going to have, you're going to have three, three stages. You're going to have a, a seven-year period of seven years, which is 49 years. And he goes, in that 49-year period, he goes, you're going to have the nation of Israel that's rebuilt, which was destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians and those that would follow. And he goes, you're going to have, whenever this thing kicks into motion, 49 years in which the nation of Israel would be rebuilt. The temple would be rebuilt. And in 445 B.C., you finally get this decree uh, to a guy named, uh, Nez- uh, you got uh, Nehemiah that will get a decree to go back and rebuild the walls. You got a guy named Zerubbabel and his buddy Ezra that get a decree, and they're able to go work on the temple. And, and that kind of kicks off. And in 49 years, they're able to build all the temple back, all the walls back, etc. Daniel goes, and after that seven-year period of sevens, that's 49 years, he goes, you're going to have another 62 weeks of seven. And he goes, and that's when you're going to see Messiah come. And Messiah is going to be cut off. He's going to be destroyed. He's going to be killed. After that, you're also going to see that there's going to be the nation of, uh, of Israel. The temple is going to be destroyed again. All that's outlined in Daniel chapter 9, verses 24 through 27. I encourage you to go read it. But here's what's happening. You got seven weeks of seven, 49 years. And you get another group of years that's uh, 62 weeks of seven. If you had 62 plus seven, you get what? 
I know it's really confusing. I got you all over the place. So here we go. Let's, okay. Uh, it's really difficult for them in the Edgewood campus. So let's help them in the Wills Point campus. 62 plus 7 equals 69. Remember, there's 70 weeks. So what Daniel is saying is, is there are 69 weeks that will be fulfilled. The first seven weeks of seven, you're going to see the temple rebuilt. You're going to see Zerubbabel and Ezra and Nehemiah do that work. From that time forward, there's going to be another 62 weeks of seven. That's going to, it makes a 483 years. You take 483 years from 445 B.C., you take out all the leap years and the fact that a Jewish calendar was 360 days as opposed to 365, and what you're going to land in is a time period between 33 and 35 A.D., what that shows you is that Jesus would come. Messiah would come. He would be cut off. He would be destroyed. The interesting thing is, though, is that you've got 69 weeks of seven. There's supposed to be 70 weeks of seven. So that means there's one week missing, a seven-year period that ultimately brings about the final punishment for the nation of Israel because of their idolatry and their rebellion against God. Does that make sense? And so that's called the week of Jacob's trouble. It's this final seven-year period that God is going to make everything right according to what Daniel chapter 9 is talking about. That is what you call the tribulation. It's the last days of God. It's God's punishment upon man that would rebel against him, but it's mostly punishment against this nation of Israel who has rejected him. Now, if you have followed me up to this point, just say, comprende. Now, I know that there's some of you that you're out there on the edge. You're like, I am trying to follow you, but I just don't get it. Well, listen, here's what you need to know. This is what the Scripture teaches. The, t- the Scripture teaches this in a very simple way. I'll give you two in two sentences. Jesus died for us on the cross. We're called the church. He lives in us. One day, he's going to come for his church. He says that in John chapter 14. After he comes for his church, which I believe happens in Revelation 4, the rapture of the church, the church is gone. The Spirit of God is taken from the earth. There is nothing to restrain uh, the enemy because the church is gone. Uh, you have this ushering into this end times period, this seven-year tribulation. Um, the seven-year tribulation is going to be for the people of Israel and for those Gentiles who might possibly be here today and go, you know what? I don't really need God, and I don't really believe in God, and I'm coming to church because my wife makes me come, but listen, I don't believe in all this garbage. You'll You'll be in that time. That's the seven-year tribulation. It's for those who don't believe in God, and it's for Israel. Make sense? Now, Daniel chapter 6 and Daniel chapter 7 give us a panoramic of this seven-year period. Got me? Y'all ready? So let's dive in. Revelation chapter 6, verse 1. Now, I watched, speaking of John... When the lamb opened one of the seven seals. Now in Revelation chapter 5, we saw that there was one who was worthy to open the seven seals. The seven seals was a a scroll that had seven seals on the outside that showed that this scroll was only able to be opened by one person. Uh, Matter of fact, Revelation chapter 5 says no one could even look under the scroll except the one who could open it. And Jesus is the only one that can open it. It had writing on the front and back. I think it's kind of the title deed of the earth. I think it's the, uh, God's final proclamation and the judgment of God on all the earth. Jesus is the only one that can open it. He decides that he's going to open it. And when he does, he opens one of the seven seals. And I heard, meaning John says, I heard one of the living creatures, one of the four living creatures say like a, with a voice like thunder, come. And so John comes and he goes, and I looked and behold, there was a white horse. And on the white horse, there was a rider. He had a bow. He had a crown that was given to him and it came of conquering. And he came to conquer and to conquer. 
So the idea was that there's a guy. And so when the first seal's open, there's a guy, he's riding a white horse. Now, I don't know about you, but you've always heard, if you've been to church, that there was going to be one who rode on a white horse. His name would be what? Good. Maybe you've never heard it before. His name would be Jesus, okay? Um, and so if you've never heard that before, in Revelation chapter 19, there's going to be one riding a white horse. He's going to be uh, the... He's going to be the line of the tribe of Judah. His name is Jesus. He's going to ride a white horse. He's going to have a sword, and he's going to come to conquer. That's Revelation 19. But if you look closely at this, this guy is riding a white horse. He does not have a sword, but he has a bow in his hand, and he has a crown. And this crown was given to him, and he came to conquer. And ultimately, you go, well, who in the world is this guy? Well, according to Daniel chapter 9, the last part of Daniel chapter 9 and verse 26 and 27, it talks about there would be one man in this last seven-year period who would rise up and he would deceive many and he would be called the prototype or the antitype of Christ. He would be the anti-Christ. And what his job was in the seven-year period was to bring peace on the earth and ultimately he would bring about uh, deception. And in that seven-year period, this anti-Christ is going to say, hey, look to me. I can bring hope. I can bring uh, peace on the earth. You should crown me. You should worship me. You should be. And so if you can imagine this, that's what happens. This guy comes. He has a bow. He has, uh, he's one who deceives. He's riding a white horse. People give power to him. They give authority to him. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 says that this man is a man of lawlessness. This is a man who deceives many. He says that I want you to make me God. You will worship me. He takes the seat in the temple of God. Listen, this isn't Jesus. This is one who Satan gives all the authority to, and he is the Antichrist. The Antichrist ushers in the seven-year tribulation period, and here's what happens. As he ushers it in, people are going to, in a sense, bend to him. He's going to bring about a ten-nation coalition, a confederacy of sorts, uh, that's going to happen somewhere in the Middle East and Europe, some of the, that new area uh, that he's going to usher in, and he's going to reign, and he's going to rule, and he's going to have peace. And that three-and-a-half-year mark, after he's made peace even with the nation of Israel, everything is going to come crashing down. And uh, that's what Daniel tells us, that, that, that he's going to, at the end of uh, that half of a period, that half of the week, three and a half year mark, there's going to be an end of sacrifice and offering. There's going to be the abomination of desolation. Bottom line is, in the middle point of the seven-year period, it's going to get crazy. Understand? Y'all got that? And so he go, how is it going to get crazy? Well, look at verse 3. When he opened the second seal, meaning Jesus, I heard the second living creature say, come. And out came another horse, bright red. Its rider was permitted to take peace from the earth so that people should slay one another. And he was given a great sword. Now, what's interesting is, is that these four different horses you're going to see. You ever heard of the four horsemen of the apocalypse? Got it? This is where they get it from, Revelation chapter 6. These may be the, the idea of metaphorically of four different horses, but they're not necessarily four different men. It's all being ushered in by one man who is the Antichrist, and it's going to come in four waves over a seven-year period. Does it make sense? So the start of it, there's a man who's given uh, power. His name is the Antichrist at the three-and-a-half-year point. Guess what? Peace is going to be taken from the earth. And so here it is. He opens the second seal, and peace is ripped from the earth. People begin to slay one another, and there, he was given a great sword. The idea of a great sword is not this really long sword. It's kind of the idea of a dagger. He's able to stab people in the back. He's able to quickly deceive and ultimately use his authority to kill people. 
This is the Antichrist. And so he is not a man that you want to be a friend with. He is not a man that's going to tell you the truth. He is the anti-type of Christ, meaning he says, I want to be like the man of peace. Who is the man of peace? Jesus. I want to give life and hope. Guess what? Jesus is the only one who can give life and hope. So this man does everything that Jesus, he wants to do everything that Jesus can do, but he does nothing. Why? Because his word is never true. And so here it is. He brings about calamity. He takes away the peace from the earth. Verse 5 says, when he opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, come. And I looked, and behold, there was a black horse. Its rider uh, had a pair of scales in his hands. I heard what seemed to be a voice in the midst of the four living creatures saying, a quart of wheat for a denarius and three quarts of barley for a denarius and do not harm the oil and wine. So here's the idea. So you got the Antichrist. He comes. He's riding a white horse. He seems to have power. He does, but yet he deceives. He's going to bring calamity upon the earth when that second seal is open, a three-and-a-half-year mark. And when calamity comes, there's going to be war, there's going to be destruction, there's going to be death. Does that make sense? And get this, when there's war, when there's destruction, and when there's death, guess what? There's also famine, and there's nakedness, and there's peril. Now, let me explain something to you. If you have a, rule, a, a ruling world order, and you have a man at the top of the chain who is the Antichrist, and he says, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall confess that I'm the one in charge, and if you don't, then guess what? You're going to get very little portions. Rations are going to be very hard to come by. That's what happens at the third seal. When there's war, there's not just war, but there's also persecution. And the persecution are for those who will not bow down to this guy named Antichrist. And so then it says, well, what happens is that there's going to be a cost for even bread or barley. The idea is that wheat would be expensive. So in a, in a day's wage, uh, in, in Roman days, a denarius was a day's wage, and it could buy you eight quarts of wheat. Got me? In this day, a denarius, whatever a day's wage, will buy you a loaf of bread. So basically, if you can imagine taking what is a commodity now and making it a scarcity, that's what's going to happen. It's going to be very difficult for those days with wars and famines and peril for people who are not a part of the destruction and the calamity the Antichrist brings. You don't take the mark of the beast. You don't get on his team. Guess what? You're not going to eat. That's the idea. There's a scale. There's an apportionment. So the idea is that you would weigh a denarius with, with, with quarts of, of wheat. Got that? There's no point in weighing because you're not going to have enough to buy. And matter of fact, it says, and then don't harm the oil and the wine. The idea is, is that unless you're an elitist in that group of company, you will not have cheese and wine and select foods. What you enjoy now at Four Winds on the weekend, you won't get your hands on. The idea is you won't be able to pay for it. The only way you'll get your hands on it is if you are deceived, and ultimately you're on the wrong team. Now let me explain something. You may go, well, it's worth getting on that team because I'm going to eat. Listen, there is never a team that you want to be on that's not the Lord's team. It doesn't matter about how much destruction or calamity or how hungry you must be. You remember Paul? He goes, hey, I know what it's like to eat. I know what it's like to be well-fed, but at the same time, I know what it's like to go hungry. I know what it's like to be naked. I know what it's like to be chased by my own men and by countrymen and bandits and everything else. He goes, I know persecution. And then he says something that is a one-liner that we stick on the back of T-shirts. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Listen, it's not about jumping hurdles. It's about in the face of persecution, when you're on God's team, he can fill in the gap. It's about when you are weak, he is strong. That's the idea here. Those 
who cannot eat in those last days because of all the famine will either be on the team that eats or you'll be on the team who you're praying, God, would you be sufficient in this time of weakness? As I starve, as I struggle to find food, would you simply be sufficient? Will you be the bread of life in which I'll never, what, hunger? Would you be the living water in which I'll never thirst again? Y'all got that picture? That's it in this last days. Verse 7 says, and then he opened the fourth seal. And when he opened the first fourth seal, he heard the voice of the fourth living creature saying, come. And I looked, and behold, there was a pale horse. And so you get this so far. You have a white horse, which is the Antichrist. You got a, a red horse, which brings about war and destruction. You got a black horse, which brings about famine. And now you got a pale horse. And this pale horse does what? His rider was named Death. And Hades followed him, and they were given authority over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword and famine and pestilence and by wild beasts of the earth. There's this great authority that's going to be given during this last three and a half years of the seven-year tribulation. There's going to be lots of death. There's going to be lots of peril. And get this, when there's death, there's also Hades that follows it. The idea is, is that many in that day, in that last three and a half year part of the tribulation, will experience eternal, gloomy darkness and judgment at the hands of the oppressor, the Antichrist, who was given power by Satan, and they will live forever in this place called Hades. Got me? You remember when Jesus said something significant, and he goes, hey, uh, even the gates of hell will not prevail against my church. The idea is that there is a place of gloomy darkness and torment, even now, and there is a place where people who do not trust Jesus and the work of the cross go for all of eternity. The idea is that it does not cease in the seven-year tribulation. Matter of fact, there will be many who will go there. Death will follow them. So during this time of war and rebellion and wickedness and famine, many will die. Doesn't sound like a place you really want to be, does it? Matter of fact, it's why so many people in here are like, man, I can't wait. Like, Lord, rapture me home. Yeah, please. I agree. I think the rapture takes place, and here's why. I think because of Revelation 4. Uh, I also think because of what you're going to see here in just a second. But here's the deal, too. If the rapture doesn't take place, and let's just say we happen to disagree theologically on when the time of the rapture takes place, get this. We know that God's going to be sufficient even in times of gloomy darkness. He does not leave us or forsake us. But I think we're raptured out. Here's what's interesting. If you look, it says, um, after the fourth seal is open, it says, then there's a fifth seal. Look at it, verse 9. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. So the, underline the word souls there. It's really significant, and here's why. Uh, if you happen to believe that there's going to be a rapture, the rapture literally means that the church, people of God now, are going to be taken with God up into the air, and we're going to be given new glorified bodies, meaning uh, that the body that you have now that's wasting away will ultimately be remade. Now, let me explain something. Uh, that's to come. I think that happens in the rapture. You go, well, what happens with me now? Like, if I die today, what happens? Well, here's what we know that happens when people die now. Paul says to be absent the bodies, be present the Lord. We know that if we die a physical death today, that our spirit departs our body and is present with the Lord. You got that? So you go, okay, so we're just spirits walking around in heaven. Yeah, actually you are. But here's the cool thing is that you're given, a uh, you're given a robe, a white robe that clothes you. So in a sense, you're, you're not void. You, you can be seen because you got a robe. Matter of fact, it's Revelation 19. Uh, we want to be dressed fine linen, white and clean. Got me? It shows that we're a saint of God. And so in this last day, you've got saints. If you're raptured, you got a new glorified body, meaning you're not walking around in a robe. Got me? 
you got a new glorified body. I don't know exactly what that looks like, but I can tell you it's incredible. Uh, we see Jesus and what he's able to do with a new glorified body. He's able to eat if he wants to, but doesn't have to. He's able to walk through doors. You remember the experience with the disciples. He looks a little different than his normal body because even uh, in the garden, uh, you saw that the ladies there, they thought he was the gardener. He didn't look exactly. I don't know all the answers to that. I just know you have a glorified body. Look what it says here, though. It says the souls, you got that? The souls of those who had been slain. The idea is that there are tribulation saints. There are people who are going to die in that seven-year tribulation, and they're not going to die and get a new glorified body yet. They're going to have just the same experience that we do. They're going to be absent of the body to be present of the Lord. So if their head is cut off in the seven-year tribulation, guess what? Their spirit is restored, they're clothed with righteousness, and they wait. Matter of fact, in verse 10, it says that these tribulation saints, these souls, will cry out with a loud voice. And here's what they cry. Oh, sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long? How long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Meaning, when will you wipe this man out? When will you take care of the Antichrist? When will you take care of all these who are on his team, who have taken the mark of the beast? Who, who will finally do this? When will you do this? When will you avenge our blood? When will you take care of it? And I love the answer. Look at this. The answer is incredible. And here's what it is. Verse 11 says, They were each given a white robe, and they were told to rest a little longer. Hey, go get your robe, and then get over there and just sit down and rest. You got that? It's almost like a spa. Like they showed up, it's heaven. He's like, just go get your robe and sit down, okay? Here's why. Think about this for just a second. I want you to see the all-striking wonder and the holiness of God. The seven-year tribulation is not because Satan has all the authority. It's because it pleased God to dwell with authority over the heavens and the earth. And he gives some permission for a seven-year period. But even Satan and all this power handed to the Antichrist is still limited compared to the spring God we serve. He goes, look, I will avenge your blood, but you will wait. And look what he's waiting on. It's incredible to see what he's waiting on. It says, I'm waiting a little longer until, the latter part of verse 7, until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete, who were to be killed as they themselves had been. The idea is that there is a specific number that God is going to allow to be killed in the seven-year tribulation before he finally ushers in this Revelation 19, Jesus coming on a white horse. Now, I don't know if y'all understand this, but do you understand the supreme holiness of a God who knows all things and even now knows the time of when the tribulation will be kicked in? He knows the man of lawlessness. He knows the son of perdition. He is in control of all of it. He knows how many New Testament saints there will be that their souls are saved. He knows how many people will ultimately die and be martyred uh, at the hands of oppressive men. He also knows the number who will follow by death and Hades because they rebel against the holy God and they follow this man of lawlessness. Do y'all get that? That's the picture here. Now, what's incredible is, is you look at this period of seven years and all the turmoil and all the challenges, and yet here's what's incredible, is that God is still at work, and he's still merciful. Amen? That's awesome. And then it says this, uh, verse 12, Then he opened the sixth seal, and I looked, and behold, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth. A a full moon became like blood. We've heard about that. We've heard about an earthquake. We've heard about uh, the sky growing dark. We've heard about a blood moon. The stars of the sky fell to the earth. The fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by the gale. The sky vanished like a scroll that's being rolled up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Now, I don't know about what, what that looks like, but I can tell you it's an incredible experience. 
Now, I think this is the very last part of the panoramic view of the tribulation. It's the very last days. It's the, it's the days that are about to usher in Jesus coming back on a white horse. And, and here's what you got. You've got mountains literally falling into the sea. It's like you're staring at the Rocky Mountains and on the, the Richter scale. I don't know what it, it ranges on, but they literally just fall down. Like it, could you imagine you're just staring at Mount Rushmore and all of a sudden it's just gone? I mean, where'd it go? I mean, what, 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 did, what just happened to my president? There ain't no president that's going to matter in the last days. Do you understand what I'm saying? I want you to know that all of it's going to fade away. Nothing will stand. Matter of fact, verse 15, look at it. It says, the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the power of everyone, slave and free, they hid themselves. They hid themselves. Underline that in caves among the rocks of the mountains, calling out to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us, hide our face from the, from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. Listen, in this last day, verse 17 says, the great day of their wrath has come. Who can stand? When Jesus comes back, there are going to be people running and they're going, please hide my face from him. I cannot look upon him. And the earth shakes. You know, the earth is shaken several times. God has done significant milestone events. One of them was at the cross. You remember the earth grew dark, the earth shook. Surely this is the Son of God. The temple has torn the veil from top to bottom. It's incredible, significant moment. Listen, it's at the very end. Who's going to stand against God? No one. Everything will pass away. Everything will be rolled like a scroll back. I think you'll see that in Revelation 20 as well when we finally get to that in the panoramic view of the whole entirety of this book. The bottom line is there's going to be colossal destruction at the hand of God, and he will rule and he will reign for a thousand years afterwards when he comes back. That's the end of that sixth seal. Y'all got that? Now, here's the crazy thing is you stop at the sixth seal. You don't open the seventh seal until Revelation chapter 8, verse 1. And then Revelation 7 is kind of tucked in there. And here's why. Because in all of this panoramic view of the tribulation, God says there's still good news. And here's the good news. The good news is I'm still working. Even in the midst of calamity and war and destruction and famine and peril and sword and nakedness and all of this, I am still pursuing people. That's the good news about God. In the seven years, he didn't just step away and go, you know what? I'm just going to let the whole earth go to mess. He goes, no, there's going to be destruction and I'm going to judge people who rebelled against me and I'm going to put a rod on the back of Israel and they're going to see me and they're going to come to me and I'm going to use people to help this happen. Matter of fact, look at chapter seven, verse one. We're going to run through this in like four minutes. Y'all ready? Probably more like eight, but here we go. Um, bottom line says, after this, verse one, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth. So here it is, these four angels, and they hold back the four winds of the earth that no wind might blow on the earth or sea or against any tree. Then I saw another angel ascending, the rising of the sun with the seal of the living God. And he called with a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm the earth and the sea, saying, do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of God on their foreheads. Here's the deal. I think this is probably... Somewhere in that three and a half year point, verse, uh, chapter seven, before all calamity comes to the earth, before there's war and destruction and famine and sword and all that, it seems that in the heavens there are the four angelic beings that are holding back the winds of the earth. And they're saying, listen, before everything breaks loose, before the... Before Antichrist reveals who he is completely and all his power and calamity come upon the earth, before all this happens, I've got something to do. And it says right there in the very last part of verse 3 that there should be a sealing of the servants of God on their forehead, 
foreheads. Now listen, is this a reminder of the book of Ezekiel when God seals some of his, his uh, Old Testament uh, people and shows that they are indeed God's people in the time of idolatry? Uh, what's interesting is, is, isn't also what Ephesians 1 tells us about us, that we're sealed for the day of redemption? How does God seal us? Through the power of the Holy Spirit. God has always been doing a work of sealing. He did that through a circumcision on the eighth day, just to simply seal and show that uh, an Israelite was an Israelite. He's been marking people all this time. So it's interesting, you'll get to the very last days, and there's going to be a mark that the beast wants you to take. It's called the mark of the beast. It's what Antichrist wants you to take. Some would suppose it's the number six. Six what? Yeah. God goes in, and while they're sealing, guess what? I'm sealing, and I'm going to seal some people as well. As a matter of fact, there's a number, verse 4, of how many are going to be sealed and who they are. It's 144,000 that will be sealed, and they'll be sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. So here's what you got. You got 144,000 sealed Jews. Got me? Real quickly, just so you hear this, it's 144,000 sealed Jews. Got that? Say with me, sealed Jews. Say it. Awesome. I did not say sealed Jehovah's Witnesses. You got me? There's nothing in here that says sealed Jehovah's Witnesses, sealed Jews. And it says there's 12,000 from 12 tribes. And if you read it, here it is. You got from the tribe of Judah. Judah was not the first tribe. Reuben was the firstborn. Why Judah? Because we know that there's a conquering king, Revelation 5, coming from the tribe of the line of Judah. His name is Jesus. That's why Judah's first. Judah. Then you've got Reuben, and then you've got Gad. Then you've got Asher, Naphtali, Manasseh, Simeon, Levi, Issachar, Zebulun, Joseph, and Benjamin. Now, there's two people that are, on, that are not on this list that should have been on the original list. And you've got Dan, and Dan is replaced most likely in this list by Levi. Levi was a part of the 12 tribes originally. Uh, then God, through Joseph, added Manasseh and then also his son Ephraim. So there was 13 total, but there was one, Levi, who was the priestly tribe. They dealt with the temple. All the other 12 uh, circled the encampment of the Levite tribe and the temple and all that. So you had the Levites, they did their priestly duty, and you had the other 12. Now what's interesting is, is you have a list of 13. Here you get 12. There's two left out. Dan is left out, and Ephraim is left out. Joseph replaces his son Ephraim. Here's why. Ephraim and Dan led the nation into idolatry and rebellion. And you know what God does when you lead his nation into rebellion? He goes, I'm going to blot you out. That's the whole point. God can blot you out in one of two ways. He can do it through the significant work of the Lamb of God. He'll blot you out through the blood of Christ, or he'll blot you out by the punishment he offers at the end. Your choice. Got me? He blots out Dan, and he blots out Ephraim because they were not obedient in those days. Got me? God always accomplishes his sovereign purposes. Here he's going to raise up 144,000 sealed Jews, and here's what they're going to do. You ready for this? They're going to be his witnesses in a tribulation period, and they're going to be the real untouchables. Got me? I'm not talking about the untouchables back in the day. I'm talking about the real untouchables. I'm talking about the ones that Satan and Antichrist have no power over. They're the children of Israel. They have a specific purpose and affiliation. They go and they preach. They're faithful. They're celibate. They're pure. They remind me a whole lot of what God's called an elder in the New Testament church to be. They are sealed for a specific purpose, and they are to preach, and they will go preaching, and guess what? They will be successful. 
Matter of fact, verse 9 and following tells you how successful it will be. It says, After I looked, behold, there was a great multitude that no one could number from every tribe and nation, from tribes, peoples, languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb with palm branches in their hand. They're crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders of the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne. They worshiped God, saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might to be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Here's the bottom line. These guys go out and they preach. They are holy and blameless. In this day, they see multitudes of people from every tribe and tongue and nation. In that seven-year period, even though there's going to be many that will die and Hades will follow them, there will be many that die and eternity is awaiting them. And God and his throne are pleased to have them dwell, and it will be a multitude. There's going to be black and white and brown and yellow and purple and every tribe and language, Gentiles and Jews alike, going to be saved for God's sovereign purpose. His grace is still there even in the midst of turmoil and persecution and judgment. You got that? Amen. Can I get an amen? Now I need that music, Mark, that you were talking about, right? Verse 13, then one of the elders addressed me saying, who are these clothed in white robes? And from where have they come from? So one of the elders speaks up to John and goes, hey, John, this would be a really good time to ask a good question. And John goes, oh, yeah, yeah, sir, you know, who are they? And he goes, well, I'm glad you asked. These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. Got that? He goes, these are the ones that have come out of the tribulation. These are tribulation saints. They have died. These are people, get this, catch this, you ready? That are sitting in church today that deny the work of God that will be there in the last seven-year tribulation, and they'll have an all-haul moment. Oh, my goodness, Pastor Brandon said something about this. It is time for me to repent. It is time for me to follow and trust God, and they're going to go through a tribulation period, but God is going to save them in spite of who they were. Praise God. That's who it is. And how are they saved? Because they had an all-haul moment, because they finally started going to church, because they finally got plugged into serving, they finally started being a part of a journey group, and they got plugged into the community. No, no, no. They were washed because of the blood of the Lamb. We're always washed by the blood of the Lamb. The only way that your sins are blotted out is because of Jesus, his perfect work, his perfect life, and his atoning sacrifice on the cross. That's why we're saved. Amen? Verse 15 then says, And therefore, uh, we're before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them from his presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst anymore. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the lamb is in the midst of the throne, and he will be their shepherd. And he will guide them the springs of living water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. It's what we long for in Revelation 21. And it's interesting. It's being fulfilled even now as we speak. Got me? It's not new heaven. It's not new earth. It's not streets of gold. It's not crystal seas. That's all to come. We look forward to that, Revelation 21 and 22. We're not there just yet, but here's what we are. We are going to live in the presence of a holy, pure God who is invincible, who is absolutely loving, who cares deeply for us, who longs for our worship, and ultimately will take care of us. He will be our shepherd. We will be his people. We will hear his voice. We will follow his commands. He will guide us to springs of living water. We will never quench. Uh, we will never thirst again, for he'll quench that thirst, and we will never mourn or cry again. Why? Because we'll have no remembrance of our sin other than we see the crucified work of Jesus, and we see those nail-scarred hands, and we are so thankful because because of who he is. Amen and amen. Amen. And so church, may I spur you on to love and good deeds. And may I say that we live in a day while we await for the approaching king, Hebrews 10, 25. May us what? Spur each other on towards love and good deeds as we wait for the day of the approaching king. I will just tell you real quickly, 
hear me. I love you. I love you. It is a joy to pastor this church, but we have no time to play games. If you are in love with this world, this probably is not the place for you. If you want to be committed to Christ and his church and the love for his word, then I think we're, we're probably heading the same direction. But listen, may we just ask God to get us on the right page. There's too much at stake. There's too many people that still need to hear. And we are supposed to be the bride of Christ with a perfect husband, dressed fine, linen, white, and clean. May we not show up at the gates all pearly and white, naked. Amen? Because we've done nothing for God. This is a time to be doers of the word and not hearers of the word only so we don't deceive ourselves. May we not be, James 1, a man who looks in the mirror and forget what he looks like. Amen? So may God commission us to go and do something important with our lives and with our day. And as you plant flowers and as you water the yard, would you know that you can give glory to God even then? Amen? Let me pray for us. God, we love you. We thank you for our time together. Would you spur us on towards love and good deeds? Would you help us to wait expectantly? Lord, we know that it's gonna come like a thief in the night. And Lord, we know that it's gonna be ushered in like childbirth. It's, there's gonna be pains. And, and ultimately those pains are gonna start with seven seals. And then it's gonna get more intense. And there's gonna be seven trumpets. And there's gonna be seven bowl judgment. And that's all to come. We look, we look forward to seeing how that all unfolds. But Lord, we're so thankful that you're in charge of it all. And while we don't know all the answers and we can't understand everything we just read with all of our hearts and with all of our minds and we do our best to wrap ourselves and our minds around it, may we know this one thing, you're in charge and at the end of the day, that's all that matters. So may we worship you, may we love you and may we proclaim the holiness of the good God we serve. Thank you, thank you, thank you for your goodness and your benevolence and your kindness towards sinners like me. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.